I promise I'm a good friend. <laughs> She's not always on time. No, it's good to be here this morning. Um, like David said, my name is Nick. I graduated from Faith Baptist Bible College like three years ago. Was it three years ago now? Uh, and since then have been working on uh, continued schooling, which is cooler in sound than it is in actual practice. Um, at a, a school up in Pennsylvania, but it is a privilege to be uh, here with you this morning, uh, and it's an opportunity that I'm excited for just to be able to share uh, God's word. So uh, if you would, ooh, fancy, fancy. All right. I'm just going to click buttons, and hopefully that thing works for me throughout the, the sermon. But uh, if you would, before we look at scripture, would you just uh, pray with me this morning? Lord, uh, it is good to be here this morning, it's good to be with a body of believers, Lord, uh, who all are gathered together because of the same reason that we've placed our faith in Jesus and we uh, believe uh, that He's coming back again. And Lord, Christmas time is a unique time; it's a special time to be able to uh, be reminded that Jesus came as a baby, but Lord, we don't stop there. We, we remember that Jesus is coming again. And, and so we're just so thankful for that. And we pray this morning as we look at scripture, as we study your word, that you would give us understanding. Lord, I don't have the ability to change hearts. I don't have the ability to change my own heart. And so we ask that you would use your word in our lives to make us more like Jesus. And we're dependent on you for that. Give us understanding to see uh, and give us hearts that are quick to, to live out the truths that we see this morning. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to tell you a story, uh, a story about a guy named Rob. And if you've ever been in a situation where you weren't exactly sure how to respond, you know what it's like or what it was like for me in this situation. A, a few years ago, I was at a coffee shop called Mars Cafe. So if you're familiar with that, it's over on University Street, kind of by Drake. Uh, and I spend a lot of time there. I tell people I actually spend more time at Mars Cafe than I do at my own house. And I'm not lying. It's just true. Um, but I was at Mars Cafe once, and, and this guy named Rob comes and sits down across the, uh, at a table kind of a, adjacent to the one that I was at. And I didn't pay much attention to him at first until he spilled his entire cup of coffee. And so like I say, his entire cup of coffee, you think, oh, he spilled a little bit and like half his – no, I mean he literally dumped – his entire cup of coffee on the table and it went everywhere and so like a nice guy I went and got napkins and I kind of helped him start cleaning up the mess that he'd made and as he finished we finished cleaning up he said to me well that's okay my day can't get much worse right and if you've ever been in a situation for anything like me my mind starts going to the story of Job right I'm thinking like uh, have you even read the Bible? Like, yeah, your day could totally get worse. Like, your house could fall in on you. Your kids could all die. Like, you know, I'm thinking of all these different things that could happen that would make his day significantly worse, right? So, like a nice guy, I said, okay, I'm sorry to hear that. Is there anything I can do for you, right? And he said, well, I just need a ride to 26th Street. And if you're familiar with the area, which uh, 26th Street was just a couple blocks down from Mars, I'm like, oh, awesome. I'm going to give you a ride. I'll give you a ride to 26th Street, right? Bad idea. No. Um, I said, I'll give you a ride to 26th Street. And they said, no, that's okay. And so finally I kind of, uh, you know, just negotiated with him and said, no, it's totally not a big deal. I'd love to give you a ride to 26th Street. I said, my car is in the back. Let's head back there, right? 
And he says, no, I can't go in the back. There's people out there. I was like, okay, that's weird. And I said, fine, that's okay. I'll drive out the front. What I didn't realize, that should have been a big red flag. Like, there's people out there? What do you mean? Okay, that should have been a red flag, but I ignored it. I pulled out to the front, and I started driving him towards 26th Street. We get about two blocks down the road, and he starts looking over his shoulder, over and over. I'm like, what is wrong with this guy? And then all of a sudden, he says, take this next left. And I said, no, what, 26th Street is that way. Why are we taking a left? So I hit the left, and he kind of looks over his shoulder again and starts mumbling to himself things about people are going to kill him, about how there's people following us, how I need to go faster because they're right behind us. I'm looking, I'm like, are they actually behind us, or is this just something that he's making up? He says, take this right, take this left, and has all these weird navigations. And finally, after almost 20 minutes, we get to this house that should have taken three minutes to get there. We get to the front. He's sitting here next to me. I'm looking ahead. I said, all right, Rob, it's great to meet you, sort of. There you are. He says, I can't go in there. I said, what do you mean you can't go in here? This is the house, right? He says, yeah, if I go in there, I'll be in a body bag by morning. And I'm like, you what? Okay, all right. Um, And just remember, like, this is Nick Harsh, nice little Nick Harsh, went to Faith Baptist Bible College. I'm like, you'll be in a body bag? What are you talking about? And so I said, okay, well, if you're actually in this kind of danger, we need to get you to a safe place. And so I figure, okay, hospitals. Hospitals are safe places. Like, you can stay in the lobby overnight. They take care of people. Like, they're nice people. I'm going to drive him to Lutheran Hospital. It's right down the street. So we drive to Lutheran Hospital. We're sitting in front of the Lutheran Hospital. I said, Rob, it's great to meet you. Kind of. Here you go. I can't go in Lutheran Hospital. I got kicked out last night. You what? And I wouldn't have believed him except that he had a hospital wristband to Lutheran Hospital on his arm. So I was like, I'm inclined to believe you. Okay, it's hard to make that up. And so I said, okay, Rob, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to take you back to the house. You're getting out of my car when we get there. And so we start going. Uh, At this point, I have to basically remember where the house was because he refuses to give me directions. He's like, I'm not giving you directions. I can't go there. And so we drive, and, and as we're going, there's police officers, like, crossing different directions. I find out later this is because he called 911 on my phone en route to Lutheran Hospital. And so as we're going, there's, like, a police car at this stoplight, and he's, like, kind of looking at me. And I'm like, Boop. and then we go to the next intersection. There's another random police officer that kind of goes this way, and then I'm looking behind, and there's, like, a police officer that follows me, and they're all just kind of following me to see what's up because he dialed 911 on my phone. We get to the house. And he says the same thing. I can't go in there. If I do, I'll be in a body bag by morning. I'm like, that's probably not true. But if it is, and this is, I didn't know what to say. You have to forgive me for this. I didn't know what else to say. I reached behind the the seat of my car and I grabbed a New Testament. And I said, Rob, if you really believe that you're going to be in a body bag by morning, my suggestion is take this, run as fast as you can to that house, Start in John and read it as fast as you can, but you have to get out of my car. And I just forced him out of my car. I was like, I'm sorry, okay, bye. And I looked on the news, and I never saw Rob's picture or anything, so I think he's probably doing all right still. But the whole time that this is going on, there are really two things that kept coming to my mind. Is One, my mom is going to be so angry at me (laughs) for picking up strangers. What was I thinking? But the second thing was this. How in the world did I get into a situation like this, right? How did I get in a situation like this? All I'm trying to do is give a guy a ride. I'm trying to help a guy out, you know, be a nice dude. 
how did I get into this situation? And the story is funny. To some people, it's more funny than others, but the situation or that feeling is anything but funny, right? Like, you've been in moments, you've been in situations where that thought is rolling around in your mind. How in the world did I get into this situation? And the reality this morning is this, that for many of us, the stress of work, the tension of different relationships, financial struggles that you're walking through, health issues that you're experiencing have all got you asking the same questions. How did I get in this situation? How am I supposed to respond? What am I supposed to do in the midst of this trial that I'm facing? And the good news is that God's word has the answers. Amen? God's word has the answer. And so what I'll have you do is turn with me to James. James chapter 1 is where we're going to be this morning. And this book of the Bible has had a massive impact in my life this year. Uh, a friend of mine and I had the opportunity to memorize it. And so you're just like going to get Nick Harsh just kind of like excited about James chapter 1 because it's a powerful chapter and it's a good chapter. And so as you look there in James chapter 1, verse 1, it says this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. So we see right off the bat that James is writing to a group of Christians that are scattered. A natural question to ask is why? Why are they scattered? And the answer is persecution is why they're scattered. In Acts chapter 8, verse 1, it says this, there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout all the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And so James who is an apostle, is writing to Christians who are scattered all throughout the known world, people who have probably lost their houses, people who have lost their jobs, who have likely had friends killed in front of them, potentially family members killed in front of them. They are massively persecuted, and they're spread. They're scattered. These are people who know what it's like to face persecution. These are people who know what it's like to walk through suffering. And it's likely that these are people asking questions like, has God abandoned me? Is this trial I'm facing proof that God doesn't love me? How can anything good come from this situation? Why would God let something like this happen to me? Or is this trial that I'm facing proof that God doesn't even exist in the first place? These are the kind of questions that these people would have been wrestling with. And while most of us here haven't lost our houses due to persecution, we do know what it's like to walk through suffering, right? You know what it's like to walk through suffering. I know what it's like to walk through suffering. And in the midst of suffering, it is so easy to think, has God abandoned me? Is this trial that I'm facing punishment for something that I did? Does God really love me and want what's best for me? Because if he did, why would he allow this suffering to take place in our life? We wonder if anything good can come from our situation. And perhaps we even have moments where we wonder, does God really even exist? Because if he did, how could he allow this stuff to happen in my life? And in many ways, we feel the weight of what these people were walking through. And while we can't identify with them exactly or, or the exact ways that they do. We know what it's like to walk through suffering. And what James does in verses 1 through 18 is he gives us 
uh, an explanation. He explains that our response in trials will determine their uh, result in our lives. And that's the big idea this morning is this, that every trial presents us with a choice. When you encounter a trial in your life, you have a choice. And our response is going to determine that trial's result in our lives. So a fun little way to say it as you're going to work tomorrow is this response determines result. So when you walk into a trial, when you face a trial tomorrow or Tuesday or Wednesday or this week or in your life, or maybe it's something you're walking through right now, the fun little thing that you can hold on to is this, that response determines result, that the way I respond in this trial is going to determine its result in our lives. And this was true for the Christians in James's day, and it's true for us today. So let's walk through uh, this passage of scripture. Look with me in James chapter 2. He gives us the way that we can respond. He says this, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. So James says, when you face a trial, when I face a trial, the way that we're supposed to respond is with joy. We're supposed to count it all joy. Now, I don't know about you, but that bumps up against everything that is natural in my life every normal inclination that I might feel to, to get out of that situation, it bumps up against that. It's not natural. I don't like to respond with joy, and I imagine you don't either. You're not like, hey, it's a trial. Yes, I've been looking forward to this, right? We don't respond that way. It's not normal. One author says this. He says, what's remarkable about this command is that it applies to a situation in which a joyful reaction is most unnatural, Namely, when you face trials of various kinds. In other words, James is telling us to respond with joy in a moment when it seems most unlikely that we would respond with joy. Why? Why does he say that? He says in verse 3, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing. So James doesn't just say have joy in the midst of circumstances. He tells us why we're supposed to have joy in the midst of circumstances. And the reason is because it's doing something for us. So often I know for me, and, and perhaps you felt this way as well, we enter into circumstances and we wonder, what is the point of this? Like, why would God allow this to be in my life? It's so annoying. It's so frustrating, right? But the reason is because your suffering and the difficult times that you're walking through is actually doing something. It is the way that God has chosen to grow us, right? That if Jesus suffered, we're going to suffer. And that's the means that he's chosen to do it. And yet, it kind of feels harsh at times, doesn't it? Pun intended, right? It feels harsh. It feels vindictive when that happens in our lives when suffering comes we feel as if god's out to get us as if he's got some sort of like lightning bolt and he's just waiting for somebody he's like ah got him suffering right that's what it can feel like at times and yet the fact that god chooses to use suffering to grow us is not vindictive it's not harsh it's actually a gracious gift by a loving father let me illustrate it this way imagine with me for a moment that I come into a large sum of money. It's like $25, right? No, more like a billion dollars, maybe a couple billion dollars, right? I come into a large sum of money. And because I'm a nice guy, I decide, hey, I'm going to give you this large sum of money. 
so I walk into church, and, and I see you kind of sitting in the, the foyer out there, and, and you're playing with a fidget cube. Have you ever seen these things? They're like these little annoying plastic deals that have little gizmos and gadgets on the edge of them. So you're playing with a fidget cube, and I come up to you, and I say, hey, I have a gift I want to give you, and you kind of blow me off, and you're like, ah, no, whatever, I've got my fidget cube. I have one of two options in that moment. I can either rip the fidget cube out of your hand and say, hey, you, I'm giving you something so much better. Here's $2 billion, right? Or I can say, eh, okay, have it your way. And I can go find somebody else that is a more willing recipient of my gift, right? And the reality is that in a way that is so much greater than that, this is what suffering is in our lives. That God in his grace, God in his mercy, takes the little thing, and it doesn't feel little, it doesn't, but he takes the thing that we've so focused on, and he rips it from our hands, and he says, let me offer you something so much greater. And it's fullness of joy, fullness of satisfaction in him. That's what suffering does. That's how suffering works in our lives. Douglas Moo, he says this, the difficulties that inevitably afflict believers have the purpose of deepening commitment to God in Christ, but this purpose can only be accomplished if they respond the right way to, our, to the problems. And so the reality is that God wants to do something in your life through suffering. He wants to make you more like Jesus through suffering, but it only can happen if we respond the right way. And so this morning, we want to look at the different kinds of responses that we can have. And the response one is this. We can choose to respond with joyful steadfastness that leads to maturity. With joyful steadfastness that leads to maturity. And if, like we said, this kind of response is not natural. So if I'm going to respond this way, if I'm going to respond with joyful steadfastness, I need to have wisdom, right? I need to be able to see what God is doing. I need to have an eternal perspective. And I need to know that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And these are what James teaches us as we walk through the passage. James actually affirms these things. And so look with me, verses 5 through 8, at the source of wisdom to face trials. He says this, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And so if you and I are going to face trials with joyful steadfastness, we need wisdom. We need to be able to see things the way that God sees them. And what James tells us is that God gives that graciously and generously to anyone who asks. God's generosity, or God's, the guarantee of our wisdom being given is is rooted in God's generosity. He says, if any of you ask, let him him ask, and God will give without reproach because he's generous. And so the, the reality is that God is a generous God and wants to give us wisdom to be able to face trials with joyful steadfastness. Not only do we need wisdom, though, to face trials joyfully and with steadfastness, but we need an eternal perspective, right? We need to be able to see things the way that God sees things. We need to be able to look 
at the big picture and see what is God trying to do in the midst of this trial. So look with me at verses 9 through 11. These are some interesting verses, but I think I've got an explanation for you that will make sense. But it says this, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass as flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So we're reading a passage about suffering and all of a sudden James starts talking about grass. What's his point? Why is he saying that? Well, what he's doing here is he's giving us the same command, but with different application. In other words, the same command applies to different people in different ways. And the thing I think James is trying to communicate is this. Don't look at what you have here on earth, right? To the, to the poor, he says, don't identify yourself with what you don't have, but look to what you do have. This morning in Sunday school, we talked about every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, right? That that's been given to believers. And so to the poor, if you feel like you're poor this morning, James says, don't look at what you have here on earth. Instead, look up, look at a bigger picture to what, God is doing that you've been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And to the rich, he gives a similar command, but with a different application. He says to the rich, boast in your humiliation. In other words, don't look at all the things that you have. Don't like get excited about, oh, check out all the money that I have. Instead, boast in the fact that to be a believer is to suffer and to identify with Christ. That as believers, part of being a Christian is to suffer. And so if you feel like you have a lot of money, if you feel like you're doing all right, he says, don't look at what's going on here. He says, rejoice in the fact that as a believer, you get to identify with Christ. Luke 9, 23, it says this, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. Philippians 2, 5 through 8, it's a familiar passage, but it says this, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who Though he was in the form of God, did not consider uh, equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so to be a Christian, to be a believer, means that we will endure suffering. It's part and parcel that... To be a believer, we identify with Christ, and that means that there are moments where we walk through suffering. And so the summary of James 9 through 11 is this. Don't look on what's right here in front of you. If you don't have money or you feel like you don't have money, rejoice in the fact that in Christ you have every spiritual blessing. If you feel like you're doing all right, rejoice in the fact that to be a believer means we identify with Christ through suffering. And so he gives us this eternal perspective to, to view our suffering through. And the last thing he does is he, he reminds us and encourages us that there's a light at the end of the tunnel, right? We've already read those. The outcome of withstanding trials, he gives us a light at the end of the tunnel. Look at with me at James 1, 12. He says this, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And so God isn't some kind of angry deity. He's not up there with lightning bolts waiting to strike you down. He's a loving God who graciously allows us to walk with, through trials. But what's awesome is that not only does God give us trials for our good, but he promises to bless those 
who walk through trial and remain uh, steadfast in the midst of trial. And so that's the first way that we can respond is with joyful steadfastness. And James gives us the ways that we can do that. He gives us the, the means that God has enabled to make that happen. And it's the source of wisdom to face trials, the perspective to endure trials, and the outcome that we get to see of withstanding trials. And so the second response that we can have when trials come is this. We can blame shift, a blame shifting and sinful desires that lead to death. And so what James is saying is that we can either respond with joyful steadfastness or we can shift the blame to God and that ultimately leads to death. Look with me at verse 13. It says this, Let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. You say, why does James bring up being tempted by God? And I think the reason is because it's in the midst of trials, it's in the midst of suffering, it's in the midst of hard times that we're most likely to think that God has forgotten about us. It's during trials when we're tempted to think that God doesn't care about us anymore. And James says, don't blame God. Don't look to God and think God's the one who's tempting me. God's the one who's putting me in the midst of this. And he, he says it's because God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. Now, in order to understand why this is uh, a good explanation, we need to understand the difference between a trial and a temptation. So if you're taking notes, you can write down this definition. I wouldn't like die for it, but it's helpful. A trial is this. A trial is the absence of or removal of something we love, desire, or want in our lives. A trial is the absence of or removal of something we love, desire, or want in our lives. In other words, you lose a loved one. That's a trial because we desire that person to be with us, right? You lose your health. That's a trial because we desire to be in good health, right? When a friend moves away, that's a trial for both the children involved, right? Because I want my friend to be here with me. When you're lonely, it's a trial because you want love, affirmation, and people in your life that care about you. And when you're lonely, you don't feel like you have that. It's the removal of something we desire, right? That's a trial. My car is like always breaking down. It's a trial because I'm like, I just want a car that doesn't break down, right? I just want something that like, can get me A to B, right? Those are trials. But a temptation is different. A temptation is this. It is the solicitation of our hearts to find the ultimate fulfillment for our desires somewhere other than Jesus. A, tr a trial is the solicitation of our hearts to find ultimate joy and satisfaction somewhere other than Jesus. So when bad things come into your life, when suffering comes into your life, your heart's going, look for fulfillment anywhere but Jesus, right? When your car breaks down, it's like, well, maybe I can complain and that'll fill it, right? Or when you lose a family member, maybe you go to another relationship that's not good and you're like looking for that satisfaction other places when it's ultimately found in Jesus. And so if temptation is the desire or allurement of something or someone other than God, this is why God can't be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. Because God can't offer joy to us outside of himself, right? that when God offers joy, ultimate joy, ultimate satisfaction, what he actually offers us is himself. You've probably heard of a guy named C.S. Lewis, right? He says this, God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. 
And so if God doesn't tempt us, if God's not able to tempt us, then where does temptation come from? And we get the answer in James. Keep reading with me, verses 14 and 15. Look at what it says. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And what James is doing here is he's explaining the way that you and I work, right? He's saying, how does your heart work? And unfortunately, our hearts, just like a fishing lure, he uses the example that like, really is familiar with fishing, that he dangles something, our hearts are dangling out this desire, right? Hey, grab satisfaction there. And then when we grab onto that, that's when sin happens. And he explains the progression He says it comes from desires, and those desires aren't always sinful. The desire to have someone love you is not sinful, but when we look for it outside of God and in ways that God hasn't intended, it becomes sinful. When we grab a hold on that, a desire gives birth to sin, and sin always leads to death if it's allowed to continue and to remain. And so the Christian life is ultimately a battle for your desires and for mine. The Christian life is not primarily about fighting to do all the right things, right? Because anyone can keep a checklist. You don't have to be moral to be able to be, uh, like, you don't have to be, like, a believer to be moral, right? Anybody can wake up and do a checklist, right? Christian life is not primarily about a checklist. It's about a battle for right affections, for right joys, that every day I wake up and I have to fight to love God and to find joy and satisfaction in God. That's where the battle happens. And so as believers, we have to embrace that. Not too long ago, I was reading a book. I'm going to tell you what book it is. You're going to think I'm weird. That's okay. Uh, A book called The Art of War by Sun Tzu. It's not necessarily the greatest book. I don't necessarily recommend it. It's all right. But as I picked up this book, I thought it was going to be this book on, like, how to swing a battering ram, right, or how to wield a sword or how to, you know, plunder the enemy, right? I thought it was going to be all this kind of stuff. But what I found out is that, Sun Tzu actually lays out all kinds of things that the the enemy, or you're supposed to do for the enemy before you even get to battle. Let me just read part of it, uh, what he says. He says, entice away the enemy's best and wisest men, so they may be left without counselors. Introduce traitors into his country, that the government policy may be rendered futile. Stir up intrigue and deceit, and thus sow dissension between the rulers and his ministries. Minister, excuse me, by means of every artful contrivance cause deterioration amongst his men, waste of his treasures, corrupt his morals by insidious gifts, leading him to excess, distribute and unsettle his mind by presenting him with lovely women. This is what Sun Tzu says to do to the enemy. He doesn't say get bigger swords. He doesn't say get a better battering ram. He says, do all of these kinds of things, cause deceit and dissension and different things going on behind the scenes so that by the time the enemy even shows up to the battle, they've already lost. And this is how it works in our own life as well, that we allow these desires to fester. We allow all these things to go on in our lives, and, and we, we kind of continually feed these things that aren't, maybe aren't wrong desires in and of themselves. But that by the time we show up to the battle, right, when sin finally presents itself as an opportunity, we've already lost the battle because we've allowed sin to fester. And when desire meets opportunity, we sin. When desire meets opportunity, we sin. And so this is how it works in our lives. And so James offers us an answer. He says, how do we respond? We look downstream 
and we look upstream. How do we respond? We look downstream and we realize that God, that sin always leads to death. And we look upstream and we realize that God is a good father. Look with me at the last couple of verses here. It says this. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And so James says, look at what sin leads to. It leads to death. But look upstream and don't believe the lie that God is not a good father. He's a good father and he gives good gifts. And if you're struggling to believe that this morning, let me encourage you to look to the gospel, right? Because the gospel, what we have is we have the most suffering that anyone has ever experienced colliding with the greatest gift that anyone could ever offer. And they meet in Jesus, right? That Jesus experienced suffering that we will never experience. And yet he's the greatest gift that we can ever receive. And they meet. And that's what James is talking about. Verse 18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. That's what he's talking about, salvation. Look at Ephesians 1 that we saw earlier today. That's how he describes salvation. It's being given the word of truth. And so James looks to the gospel and he says, Believe the gospel, cling to the gospel in the midst of suffering. Hold tight to the fact that God is a good father. In Romans 8, it's so good. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not then also with him graciously give us all things? He sent his son. He loves you. He cares for you. And so in the midst of suffering, in the midst of trials, don't believe the lie that he's not a good father. He is. He's a good father. And I hope that you believe that and cling to that this morning. Would you pray with me uh, this morning? as we close out our service. Lord, thank you for your goodness to us. Lord, thank you for your love. And it is so easy sometimes when we face difficulty to believe the lie that you're out to punish us, that you're out to get us. But Lord, we look at scripture and we know that you're a good father and pray that you'd help us to believe that and to hold on to that and to, to cling to that this morning and this week. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.